Well, as I've said about 14 times already, it is Palm Sunday. And throughout the years, the church, big C around the world, has recognized this occasion, Palm Sunday, for at least two reasons. First, we're reminded that Jesus was hailed king on this Palm Sunday, on the Sunday before he was crucified, on the Sunday before he was risen from the dead. Crowds of people, crowds of people were worked up into a frenzy. They were placing their nationalist hopes on Jesus to be a deliverer who would overthrow Rome and bring Israel to this glorious new age is what they expected. And this is an important reminder because while people were correct in declaring Jesus king, they were greatly mistaken in what kind of king he actually was. Now, the second reason that we recognize Palm Sunday in the church around the world is because we recognize that we have the exact same flaws that those people had. The same tendencies to turn Jesus into some other kind of king, usually a king made in our own image. We have the same ability to declare our worship and devotion to Jesus one minute while rejecting some of his most foundational teachings the next when we just feel like it. And in some important sense then, Palm Sunday is a warning to us. It's a warning that Jesus calls us to follow him as he really is, not as we invent him to be in our imaginations. Now, over the past 10 months, we have been walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as a church. Every Sunday almost, we've been uh, walking through that text, and you can't really get a more concise clear picture of what kind of king Jesus is, of what is important to him than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And today, we're going to begin the final part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. But before we do that, I just want to set the scene because we, including me, have short memories, even from last week. And especially if you're just visiting us today and you're like, I haven't been here for 10 months. I don't know what the series is about. Let me just set the scene. So prior to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he has this crowd of people and he is proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven was breaking in in time and space right in his teaching, right in his person. These crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They're hanging on every word and deed. And, And so he goes up on a hill. This is in Matthew 5 now. He goes up on a hill just like Moses did over a thousand years earlier. And Jesus sits down, as was the custom for teachers in that day, and he begins to teach them. First, um, he started with what we'll call, uh, we often call the Beatitudes, right? He starts with grace. And he begins telling people that everyone who recognizes their need for God, who recognizes their poverty of spirit, can begin training with Jesus. They can begin entering the kingdom life right then and there. Now, this was incredibly good news to a group of people who had been written off by the religious leaders and by the social elites and by the Romans. Well, then Jesus makes it clear that he's not making a new religion or doing away with the law and the prophets. Far from that, he was actually fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's showing us the ethics behind those laws. So where the law said not to murder, Jesus says that we're to actively love one another and to seek reconciliation with each other. Throughout this sermon, Jesus is casting a vision for what life can be like when we trust him and when we live into this new reality of the kingdom of God. And he sums it all up with this statement. In all things, 
Treat people the way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. After that statement, Jesus declared these words. Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from fig bushes, nor thorns from thi- uh, figs from thistles, are they? So then every tree that bears good fruit, every tree... That is good bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Now, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many mighty deeds? And I'll say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you have your Bibles to that Matthew 7, 13 through 23, I want to encourage you just to be a good student and just have that open throughout the sermon. Because I'm going I'm to reference it as though we knew what we were talking about in those verses. And you might just want to look down and see for yourself. I always encourage you to do your own work on that. So you have that open. Uh, the way we're going to tackle this text is by breaking it up into two sections because that's, the text breaks up naturally. Uh, the first section is kind of the section of the two gates, the narrow one and the broad one. And then the second section is discerning the heart. You know, they've got the false prophets and the, and, the, and the fruit and the tree and all that kind of stuff. It's really, how do we tell who's for real? Okay. So first, Jesus talks about a narrow gate that leads to life versus a broad gate or road that leads to destruction. Now, if this teaching seems a little bit black and white to you or overly definitive, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. You know, I often say, and so I'm probably like a broken record if you've heard me a lot, but like context is everything. And one of the things that we have to do when we're looking at a biblical text is to understand what kind of genre we're looking at, okay? So you wouldn't, like if you have a letter from a loved one, maybe a lover or a family member, okay, you wouldn't read that letter the same way you would read a dictionary or a periodical, right? You just read them differently because they're different kinds of, of literature. Now, all scripture is inspired by God. It is all authoritative in its own way, but we read things differently depending on the genres. So, for example, we don't, um, we don't read the poetry of the Psalms in the same way that we do theological history, like stories about Moses or David. They, they're just different. We know in the Psalms, when, when he's using metaphors about like people being like trees or rivers, like people aren't really trees or rivers, that it's simile, right? It, it, okay, you know where I'm, you're going with me on this. 
Okay, so what we have here in Jesus' teaching uh, in the two gates is classum, classic wisdom literature. It's, it's classic wisdom rhetoric. The image of the two ways is super common. Uh, think Psalm 1. Uh, there's, there's so many passages where it's like, choose this way or choose that way. Choose life or choose death. It's in ancient literature, and it's all over the scriptures. And in fact, there's an example that Finley's going to put on the screen. It's Deuteronomy 13, 15 through 19. And I always think participation is better than not. So we're going to read this together, right, Finley? Oh, it, that screen's still not on. Okay, so I'll try and keep with you here. Um, let's read together. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Thank you. So, this is classic wisdom rhetoric, right? It's the classic teaching style of the two ways. Do this one and you'll live. Do that one and you'll die, right? Now, we all know that life is a lot more complicated than that. We know from other parts of scripture and from experience that God's grace abounds, that, that God knows our deep inner thoughts of every single heart, he knows our wounds and our trauma and our mental imbalances. Like he's aware of why we tick and the way we tick. He knows all the reasons and causes for why we are the way we are, why I, Chris Eldridge, am the way I am. I wish he would tell me. I don't get it. Um, why you are the way you are. God knows that. I don't get it, right? And, and so he knows and applies nuance and grace to every single person. That's who God is. But there are times in your life when this gray area mentality can be overwhelmingly laborious. As far as our sense of direction, our sense of, you know, sometimes I just need to know, like, am I on the right path? Am I in? Am I out? Am I doing okay in life? And it's at those moments, it's at those moments of needing to remember which way is up and which way is down, which way is right and which way is wrong, that wisdom teaching can be so important. It's intentionally black and white and unambiguous. It's purposefully simplistic. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, now hear me on this. This is not a teaching that you're going to want to recite to some random person at work or on the street or in social media. Okay? Uh, this whole sermon in Jesus' original setting was to people 
who were first century Jews. And because these people were first century Jews, we can make at least three, like, assumptions, right? First, all these people believed in God. All these people believed in God. B, uh, the second thing, they believed that there would be a day when God would bring his kingdom to earth, a day when God would come and dwell with humans and bring justice for the oppressed and judgment on the oppressor. Like, everyone's believing that ideal. And then the third thing is that they all thought, to some degree or another, that they would have an active role in this kingdom, that they would be a part of it in some positive way. Okay, so everybody that Jesus is talking to about these narrow gates and broad gates, everyone's already assuming that there's a God. And many of the religious leaders of their day were teaching that if you did the outward deeds of righteousness, like praying and tithing and studying the scriptures, worshiping at the temple, etc., etc., that you, then you would have a chance at being part of God's movement, of his kingdom, when it did come. And then here comes Jesus and he's saying not to neglect the law of the prophets, not to stop praying or tithing or giving to the poor or studying the scriptures, but to do these things from a place of worship and relationship with the Father. To do these things to draw close to God out of love and out of compassion for people. So the Pharisees, you know, emphasized not murdering, not committing adultery, not doing things to others that you wouldn't want done to yourself. But Jesus comes and preaches a greater righteousness than not to do certain things. He preaches more than not murder because he calls us to reconciliation. He teaches us to do unto others what we would want done to ourselves. That's going on the attack with generosity. He sets out a positive, engaging ethic about two, uh, two roads um, I'm sorry, a, a positive, engaging ethic for human flourishing. So when Jesus presents these two ways, he does not have in mind 21st century Americans living in the Pacific Northwest who have no concept of the biblical God or any desire to hear what Jesus might have to say about wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, so that's not an opening line for, for your friends around the coffee table there or anything like that. In fact, I would say, just on a side note, that, that is what outreach is for. Like, love people. I'm convinced that when we actually act like Jesus is talking about, that that is the best um, <laughs> outreach advice rather than telling people about two paths and two roads and wolves in sheep's clothing and stuff that they don't even care about. Okay. So what is this passage talking about then to people who do claim loyalty to the biblical God? What does it mean to enter through the narrow gate? Well, contrary to some popular teaching out there, it does not mean that Jesus is contrasting an easy road with a harder road. He's not contrasting an easy road with a harder road. The Greek word for wide here literally means broad, spacious, roomy, while the Greek word for narrow means focused or restrictive. In fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, that's the same gospel that we're in where the Sermon on the Mount is, Jesus will say, come to me, all you who are weary and who are burdened, and I will give you a harder road. No, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am a hard-driving master. No, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says, for my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. I love what ethicist Glenn Stassen writes. I'm quoting here. I do not think Jesus' point is that this way or his way is hard. Rather, his way is narrow in the sense of being definitive. Live specifically by these words and you'll have life is what Jesus is saying. I continue quoting here. In fact, many of us have found that living a life of hostility and bitterness and resentment towards others, a life of deceit and not telling the truth, a life of worrying all the time about prestige and what others will think about me, or a life of always wanting more for myself or condemning other people, a life like that is much harder than living the way of Jesus, end quote. Jesus' road is not harder, it's more restrictive, meaning life is found in Jesus alone, not all of the other options on the table, not in all the different philosophies, religions, ways of living that the world offers. It is found in the way of Jesus and his better righteousness, not in an outward following of certain rules and regulations. That's what the narrowness means. And let me just address part of this passage that I know brings people anxiety because in my pastoral work with people in private, many of you ask me, what does this mean about like, does this mean like not many people are saved? Like most people are on the broad road and hardly anybody's on the narrow road. Don't get hung up on the numbers. This is not a statement meant to help us understand precisely how many people are quote unquote in and quote unquote out Whatever that means, that's a whole other sermon topic. But remember that this is the wisdom genre, and it's intentionally simplistic and black and white so as to help guide us to make a choice. In a sense, it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable so that you'll act, right? It's a, in a sense, it's supposed to jolt us into action. Who wants to be on the road to destruction? What should I do to enter on the narrow gate? That's the question that we ought to be asking. Follow Jesus is the answer, right? Another reason that we don't read into the number, numbers of, of who's through the narrow gate and who's on the broad gate um, is that appearances are just wickedly deceiving, aren't they? Appearances are deceiving. It is really hard to tell from the outside what a person's heart is like on the inside. That's sort of, that's sort of the point of the next part of the passage. Wolves in sheep's clothing are difficult to detect, and so then he tells us to beware of false prophets. Beware of wolves who dress up like sheep. Uh, beware of those who on the outside look like followers of Jesus and do the things that followers of Jesus might do and say oftentimes very correct doctrine and, and know the scriptures really well, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're the same ones who love to, that we love to turn into Christian heroes. They preach well, and sometimes they perform miracles in Jesus' name. They build up large followings, and sometimes the really cool ones build up small followings of just the right kinds of people. But beware, because while they might be doing the right things on the outside, inside, their hearts are not tuned toward Jesus. They're not people who are seeking forgiveness, who walk in humility. Beware, because despite all the good that they do, Jesus declares that they're lawless, lawless. By the way, you know, he, he says there are these people that say like, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name do all these miracles and cast out demons? Jesus is not saying anything negative about prophecy. I mean, Paul tells us later in his letters to pray for that gift, 
And he's not talking negatively about casting out demons or doing works of power. I mean, Jesus does all that stuff, and so do his disciples, right, in the scriptures. The issue is that false prophets and pseudo-disciples do these things without love for Jesus. They do these things for all sorts of reasons. I don't know, duty, seeking popularity, but they don't do them to please their Father in heaven. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew, one-third, nearly one-third of that sermon, almost all of chapter 6, is devoted to warning us to do things in secret for the Father's reward rather than the world's reward. Doing works of power does not mean that, um, doing works of power does not mean you trust in Jesus. Demons can do works of power. Nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus tell us to do these showy things. You know what he calls us to do? To love, to practice fidelity in our relationships, to keep our word without oaths, to be generous, to pray without pretense, to fast privately, to trust Jesus instead of our material possessions, and to seek first the kingdom of God in all of our ways. Those are the things that are really important to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, how are we supposed to know the true disciples from the false? Well, Jesus says we'll know them by by their fruits. But here lies the conundrum. Stick with me on this logic. Jesus is either mixing metaphors so badly as to rival contemporary Christian music, or he's trying to show us, or he's trying to show us something just next level important. And since I trust that Jesus is the living God, I'm going to say he's, next, he's going on something next level important, rather than trying to be the proto-Chris Tomlin, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. <laughs> I like a lot of Chris Tomlin songs, sorry. Seriously, Jesus gives us a teaching that is supposed to make us ponder. Because if what makes false teachers dangerous is that by all appearances they look like Christians, then how will looking for the fruits actually help us? Like, if the disguise of the wolf is really good, then the fruit's going to look good, isn't it? Like, the fruit will look good. They'll do good stuff. David Pennington, this other guy, uh, this New Testament scholar, he, has it, he says it really well, so I was going to quote him. Here I go. It's doing of false works that appear to be good that makes a false prophet false. I was going to say that again. That sounded like a mouthful. It is the doing of false works that appear to be good that makes a false prophet false. Wolves are precisely most dangerous because they appear like sheep. That's what makes them dangerous. Therefore, one cannot actually tell a false prophet by his or her actions. Prophesying, casting out demons, performing mighty works, this is precisely what makes him or her successful at being a false prophet. This is confusing and threatens to break down the whole metaphor, end quote. And I say, exactly. Remember what comes right before this passage. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Do not judge, right? Why do you try to take the speck of sawdust out of your brother or sister's eye when, behold, you have a structural timber, a log in your own eye? The log in our eye obstructs us from making decisions about others with good perspective. With that in mind, consider how we so often misapply this teaching about knowing a tree by its fruit. 
I see this, no, I'm simplifying. <laughs> I see this misapplied in two main directions. First, first is the way most people read it. We look at the fruit of people, right? I look at the fruit of, of Schoon, or I look at the fruit of Chuck or Eric, and we deem them qualified, certified. Right? And these are good guys. I, I trust your good trees. <laughs> but right now, Many, and I am saying this in all caps in my notes, hear all caps when I say it, many, not all, many prominent bishops in the Russian Orthodox Church have aligned themselves with Vladimir Putin. And they have judged that the so-called fruit of his conservative social stances are enough to overlook the atrocities done against human beings in the name of advancing what they would consider good social policy. They're judging a tree by the fruit. And before we get too self-righteous as Americans sitting over here, we do this all the time when we join our faith to politics, whether it's Trumpist nationalism or a liberal progressive view of living out of our ethics. We do this with Christian leaders who become our heroes only to later see them fall and listen to documentaries on Christianity Today or whatever your documentary of choice is. We do this all the time with friends or acquaintances who have parts of their lives out of alignment with Scripture, but we overlook that because we say, look at the fruit, they do such good things. So the sinful part must not be that bad. So that's one way that we overlook this, is we see some good fruit, and we certify someone, and we just say, like, they're all good because they did some good stuff. On the other hand, we're quick to condemn others who may be unpopular or out of step because they don't bear the kind of fruit that we personally value, right? Uh, We've often, uh, too often, have assumed that when we look at the fruit that we no longer have logs in our eyes, that we can tell the good fruit from the bad, that we can correctly identify the plant, figs from thistles, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's an important corrective for us to look in the mirror. I wonder if this passage is a lot more about us looking in the mirror than us trying to be a detective about someone else's fruit and whether they're in or out. After all, this passage comes right after the part about not being judgmental, about having a log sticking out of your face, limiting your perspective. How then can it say like, hey, why don't you go judge people and see what kind of fruit and who's in and who's out? Maybe, maybe this is about me and you looking in the mirror and saying, what fruit am I bearing? What road am I on? The immediate context of this whole thing about bearing fruit is the imperative, the command to take the narrow road. Look, at in, the, look in the mirror at your own life. Not at all the things you're doing, but at your heart. As we bring this preaching moment to a close and prepare to participate in communion, I want to invite us into a time of silent reflection, of looking in the mirror. And let's enter into that time with the words from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me on the everlasting way. Let's take a moment now to look in the proverbial mirror.